Welcome to Medicare for All Explained. This podcast will enlighten our listeners and dispel the distortions that surround Medicare for All. Medicare for All Explained is produced in collaboration with Physicians for a National Health Program and is hosted and produced by Joe Sparks. I'm your host, Joe Sparks. This is episode 40, Join the Fight. My guest, Chrissy Holt, has a Master's of Science in Social Psychology from the London School of Economics and is a seasoned businesswoman who has lived or worked in North Carolina, Florida, Virginia, Australia, and England. Her 30-year career has varied from career builder to Disney Institute now, and she has held multiple leadership positions. Her role at the Disney Institute aligns to her purpose of creating a better workplace for workers. Ms. Holt currently lives in Maryland. She considers raising her children the most significant accomplishment of her life. In 1995, her son was born with severe hemophilia A and declared uninsurable. His birth with a pre-existing condition immediately propelled her into volunteer advocacy. Chrissy Holt, welcome to Medicare for All Explained. Thank you, Joe, for having me. I'm excited to be here today. That's great. Why did you get interested in health care issues and health policy? Well, it, it's a very good question. And it really starts with um, when my son was born in 1995 in the state of Virginia with severe hemophilia A. And at the time, we were on their Blue Cross Blue Shield uh, plan in Virginia, and they declared him uninsurable. And, you know, as a young family, young parent um, of privilege, right, meaning I grew up uh, in the Washington, D.C. area in Potomac, Maryland. My parents worked for the federal government, and we had insurance my entire life. So I never understood really uh, not being able to go to a doctor or uninsurable. I mean, we just always had access to doctors and the care that we needed. And uh, so it was at that moment when my son um, was diagnosed, you know, with hemophilia. And um, I was told that my option was to uh, let go of my assets and go on Medicaid uh, or uh, you know, we just had to do something else. The Blue Cross Blue Shield wasn't going to carry us. And my sister, uh, son also has it. Of course, it's a genetic clotting disorder. And uh, the real tragedy of hemophilia is that it becomes crippling. They bleed internally in their joints and their muscles and their soft tissue. So here we are in this moment of, you know, dealing with a chronic, uh, significantly tragic disease but yet we're scrambling to figure out how we're actually going to pay for this. But my sister still lived in Maryland, and she was able to have uh, insurance with Care First Blue Cross Blue Shield. So uh, my um, then husband reincorporated his company in the state of Maryland, and we moved back to Maryland. And, you know, it's in that moment that I realized policy uh, was greatly going to affect the outcome of our life. And uh, started to started that long journey, the 25 year journey of you know advocating for access to quality health care, and 
Um, so the rest of the story will probably unfold in the podcast today. But that's how it started and continues to be. Uh, he's going to be 26 and falling off my health care. So, you know, this is this is a long saga. It's not over yet. So just to be clear, you have a new baby and you discover he has a serious disease. And on top of that, you're then told, oh, by the way, you can't get insurance. Fun system, isn't it? Well, it's it's tragic. I mean, at that point, you're you're really hostage to the system, uh, not knowing you know what's available. But all of a sudden, the bills are coming in because he had spent you know two weeks in the NICU. It takes a while to get these things diagnosed. Uh, and I and I will say, you know, my first son died at Children's Hospital, so he was my second son a year later. So, you know, we were dealing with tragedy on top of tragedy, and so, you know, at this point, we're um, and we're also learning how expensive it is. Hemophilia is the most expensive condition on the planet uh, currently today. His and, and it has been for the last fifteen years. It's two thousand dollars a dose every other day so that he doesn't um so that he can clot and and the result of and that's called you know prophylaxis and the result of you know treating in advance preventing bleeding you know he's graduated from the university of maryland with honors and he's on his way to university of texas austin to to study economics to get a master's degree uh he's a huge advocate i mean you know, as a baby in a stroller, you know, I had him walk in the halls of Congress and, you know, putting him in front of my congressmen, uh, continue to be represented by 10 men in the state of Maryland, you know, saying, how are you going to deny this baby, you know, his access to his drugs? Why can't he have his drugs? Um, and, you know, there were years here in Maryland uh, where we fought for, for state, adequate state mandates to have people covered here in Maryland. Uh, and, you know, back in the years of, let's see, it was like the early 2000s when our Blue Cross Care First was trying to go into the for-profit, you know, environment, you know, watching all these other Blue Crosses across the United States move to for-profit status uh, and their CEOs taking these golden parachutes. You know, we've fought against that. Uh, and, uh, you know, in the House and in the Senate here in the state of Maryland, we did have an advocate with, you know, um, former, you know, House Speaker Mike Bush. And, you know, we fought that to make sure that we had some really tight mandates here that uh, and, and that they couldn't convert to a for-profit organization, a state nonprofit. And, you know, I earned um, a lot of times. I'm known as the hemophilia mom. I'm definitely loud about it. Uh, the, the, the press guy for Care First came up to me and just said, you know, you are a PR nightmare. And, and I really, you know, I hold that in high esteem uh, because, you know, to deny people care is a crime against humanity. And Joe, we're watching it now in spades with the COVID pandemic. And I just, you know, I got to press on the fact that, you know, no one in Maryland is talking about what we can do to make sure there's universal coverage. Uh, I think it's a crime that we're even entertaining the fact of sending our kids to school when we don't have universal care here in the state of Maryland. Uh, you know, we've been. Uh, sort of playing around with this idea of expanding Medicaid and, you know, allowing families who find themselves now unemployed and uninsured, you know, give them the safety net. 
And if we're not going to advocate for adequate health care, then why would we send our children into schools where they could actually get COVID and die? I mean, we have to ask ourselves, you know, why are we acting like this to each other? And, you know, I'm going to press into the racist conversation. because I think that's where, you know, that's an important part of the, of the health care, the lack of health care uh, in this country today. Well, you mentioned Maryland. So what do you think needs to be done within the state of Maryland? And, you know, what do you think needs to be done nationwide? And, of course, you said you wanted to mention racism in our health care system. So, you know, mm-hmm. let's talk about that. So. What would you like to talk about first, and then we can get to some of the other issues, because I brought up three issues. I know, exactly, Joe. So, uh, (laughs) (laughs) you know, I'm not an expert. I'm a volunteer. And uh, so I am the co-chair of our revolution here in Anne Arundel County, and uh, I also uh, am a volunteer on the Maryland Progressive Healthcare Coalition. And, you know, like I, um, uh, maybe I haven't mentioned, but, you know, I have healthcare for life. You know, my husband's a retired uh, federal government worker, you know, 33 years. He's paid his dues and he was able to have federal Blue Cross Blue Shield insurance, which is actually considered the gold standard. But yet we don't have vision, we don't have dental and we don't have long term care. And I'm really tired of politicians in both parties telling me that I like my insurance. I don't like my insurance. I've had to pay hundreds and thousands of dollars every year. Uh, to make sure that all of our four kids have adequate access to the doctors. And for the most part, you know, we pay cash for because we can't get the, to the doctors that we need to for chronic Lyme disease or from dyslexia, right, So uh, or alcoholism and treatment from that. So, you know, there's so many things that insurance companies don't cover because it's not profitable uh, and, uh, you know, that we've had to pay cash on the barrel to get it. And that's our privilege, and I'm very... Uh, aware of that privilege. Uh, but yet I keep fighting because, you know, our four kids are millennials and uh, two of them are are rolling off our insurance plan. Uh, one landed nicely. She does have uh, insurance through her employer. Uh, like I said, my son is severe hemophilia. He's about to go to graduate school. You know, and we're looking at it like this is his last year quote of life, right? He's 25. Uh, he has the freedom to move around the country because he's on my insurance. But boy, once he hits 26, man, you know, he's going to be as trapped as I've been. You know, I've had to only work for certain employers so that I could have access to health care. You know, I was afraid to move out of the state of Maryland, although I do work nationally with the Hemophilia Foundation and Hemophilia uh, Foundation um, uh, uh, Federation. Um, And unfortunately, they just voted for the COBRA Act uh, in this last Heroes Act in Congress, which is a shame because... um, you know, that supports the, the for-profit insurance companies, and it doesn't provide adequate access to the hemophilia community and the Medicare for All emergency bills in Congress. Uh, but I digress. Let me bring it back. The fact is these 26-year-olds um, are, you know, are struggling to find adequate employment uh, with enough hours to actually get the benefits that they need. And I don't have the statistics exactly, but I know that they're out there because people have talked about them, that we're seeing a higher death rate with our 26-year-olds as they roll off parents' insurance. And, you know, as my son and I, we were planning, um, at the time, he had a great job in D.C., but, of course, it was a small company. He didn't have 
to have insurance because he was on my insurance. So, of course, that small business owner benefited from it. And, uh, you know, we were planning. We're like, okay, well, when you're 26, like, what will the world look like? Well, you know, it's really hard to predict, you know, where are we going to be? Where is that, quote, Maryland Insurance Exchange? What's it going to be offering a year or two years from now when he actually needs to buy insurance himself? Um, You know, how am I going to help him? you know, maybe pay for that. And that's what happens in a lot of the hemophilia communities. The parents help pay for these insurance policies so that the kids can be covered. But, you know, part of that too is there's skinny plans out there that won't cover hemophilia. So here you're paying money, but you can't get your drugs covered. And they're not transparent about that. And, you know, so we fight those skinny bills in Congress to make sure those insurance plans don't come forward. I mean, it's just a constant battle to make sure that our kids don't die bleeding to death. And every year we're in Congress fighting for something. And I've got to tell you, the congressmen, you know, Hoyer and all the guys that have been in office for my entire lifetime, you know, they keep patting me on the head going, you know, Chrissy, just, you know, hang on. We'll stabilize this Affordable Care Act and and we'll get there. And I'm like, guys, clock is ticking. Like, he's going to be 26 and you still haven't fixed it yet. So... I don't know what Biden's going to do with this public option. I know that the tax force uh, just revealed the item. Uh, Definitely Medicare for All is not going to come out of the gate quickly. But, you know, maybe this public option will take care of the chronically ill. Uh, Maybe my son will have a chance. But, you know, the way that we explained it to our congressmen uh, this past March, you know, as we went through Senator Cardin's office and Senator uh, Van Halen's office and anybody that'll listen to us, particularly Starbanes, because that's the district diamond, is to say, look, my highly educated kid who's super smart and actually could have a great job and be a tax-paying citizen, you know, if he can't get his medication, then he's more expensive. And that's what we've always been saying, because he requires more factor and he will cost more than his usual $250,000, $300,000 a year. Uh, and he would end up spending more time in the hospital. And so keep him working, keep him on his medication. $2,000 dose is a lot cheaper than what he's going to cost because most hemophiliacs that don't get treatment in other states, you know, they'll spend upwards to a million dollars in healthcare. The hemophilia community was instrumental in, in some of the essential benefits in the Affordable Care Act, you know, in terms of no lifetime cap because we blow out, you know, we, we, we'll go through, you know, millions of dollars of, of healthcare in a year. Uh, so there's no lifetime cap. Um, there's no pre-existing condition. That was us uh, and and the chronically ill community. And but the 26 year old, you know, that was that was the issue. You know that we could get our kids through college, but you know now we know the shenanigans of corporate America now, where they're either self-insuring, in which case they could discriminate against my son, or you know they don't give they don't offer the benefit, or they don't give you enough hours to qualify for the benefit. But anyway. We figured out that, you know, if worst case scenario, he could go on Medicaid uh, when he's 26. And we sort of decided that this would be okay. Uh, the, the, the minimum wage in the state of Maryland right now is at $11 an hour. And we did the math that if he started um, earning $11 an hour on January 1st, and he worked 40 hours a week, uh, with the income cap on Medicaid to force poverty in this country, um, you know, you're, you're capped at making $17,000 a year to keep Medicaid. So my son would have to stop working in mid-October 
and then could not work for the rest of the year until January, again, he could start working at $11 an hour to keep his Medicaid. And so when I start talking about how it's a racist system, it's a racist system when Medicaid forces generational poverty of our black and brown communities are chronically ill and are elderly um, on this, quote, great Medicare plan that covers long-term care and vision and dental and all these things insurance companies don't cover. But, but the sacrifice, you know, the vow to poverty that you have to make to actually get, uh, you know, to get access to health care. I mean, it's just so, again, I, I am passionate that health care is a human right. I'm, I'm passionate that there are crimes against humanity going on right now in America as a result of this. And, you know, it, 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 this is how it's set up, and this is why we continue to fight every day. Well, okay, so I'm going to ask you a more focused question <laughs> in a minute. You covered a lot of issues. One of the things you mentioned about employment, and of course, a lot of people have lost their jobs, and that's going to create it's another healthcare crisis or add to the current ones. So let's start with one question, and that would be, what would you like to see happen on the national level? I know you touched on it a bit, but at the national level, what do you think needs to be done? Well, right now, in the COVID crisis, there are two bills that are sitting in Congress, one in the House and the one in the Senate, the Medicare for All emergency bills. And I guess the two big things in these bills is one is it's universe, three big things, universal care for everybody. So everybody gets it, everybody in, nobody out. It controls costs, right? I mean, insurance companies right now are having COVID profits. They're, they're calling it the COVID quarter. You know, United Healthcare is stock is trading at almost $300 a share right now. So these guys are making billions and that's all over the news. Uh, so controlling costs. And then it also, um, so it's universal care and it's controlling costs. You know, everybody, uh, everybody, and sorry, there's like one more piece to it. Oh, it's, it's not only controlling costs from, from the hospital side, but it's controlling out-of-pocket costs. Right. So when we have millions of people that are furloughed at this point, including myself, by the way, uh, then, you know, you're not asking us in the quote, you know, there's the COBRA bill, the counter to these Medicare for all bills is what's called the COBRA bill. And that's what actually got baked into the HEROES Act that Congress, uh, that the House sent over to the Senate. And what that COBRA bill does is it says, okay, furloughed employees, uh, we're going to help pay the initial COBRA lift. But you, in furloughed employee that's making a third of your income, if that, uh, you still need to pay deductibles, co-pays. Uh, you still need to deal with all the shenanigans of health care that denies care and access and, you know, what they will pay and what they won't pay in the fight that I've been fighting for 25 years. So that's not an answer. That's not an inclusive answer. What that does and what it shows us with the, about the political appetite of both the Democrats and the Republicans is that they still take campaign money from insurance companies and drug companies, and they will continue to protect their profits by bailing them out. And that COBRA bill is a bailout. It's a check that we're going to write with our taxpayer dollars directly to these for-profit insurance companies to keep people on insurance. And as I've already mentioned, uh, we don't like our insurance. You know, some people might like their insurance, but when I press into that conversation with, you know, citizens, I usually find out that they don't actually use it. But if you used your insurance, then you probably wouldn't like it. 
That's what I'd like to see is Medicare for all. That would be ideal. Uh, at a minimum, there's two bills that they could vote on right now in the middle of a global pandemic uh, as we begin to surge again here and across the U.S. And then specifically in the state of Maryland, um, you know, why can't they expand Medicaid? Uh, if Medicaid is actually run at the state level, uh, they could expand or release this poverty cap of $17,000 a year for an individual or $34,000 a year for a family to qualify. You could actually release that and increase it. Um, some of us have been, you know, suggesting maybe 317% of income, which is what California does, might put you at about $83,000 a year for a family. Excuse you me know? for a minute. Um, you said yeah, 317% of income. You meant the federal poverty level, I think. Thank you. I did. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Which which would translate into, you know, think about $83,000 a year. Yeah. But again, well, I'm a volunteer, right? We're, we're activists. So, you know, I would love for somebody to challenge this, an investigative reporter or, you know, a congressperson or somebody take this on. I mean, the fact that we're not a delegate or a, a senator here in the state of Maryland, I mean, at least have the conversation, you know. Uh, you know, no, Chrissy, we can't do 317% of the poverty level, but we could do 200, right? Well, okay, well, that's a little movement. Let's talk about why. So somebody here needs to talk about it. What they do talk about and what they've done now twice, Joe, is open up the Maryland Insurance Exchange. So what they have said is buy more insurance, which is consistent with the conservative Democratic narrative, right, of support for-profit insurance organization, preserve the profits of care first, and use your unemployment checks or your savings account to make sure that you can continue to pay deductibles and co-pays. And we're saying that's absolutely absurd. And I can tell you from my furlough experience here with the Department of Labor, you know, I was furloughed in April and it took till late June for me to actually get my first check. So like I said, I have healthcare for life, so this isn't my story, but there are, you know, um, and it's hard to get these numbers. They're now mixing them up. But we've heard as high as over 800,000 people filed unemployment claims with the Department of Labor. So if you're unemployed, you're probably now uninsured. And you can't even Google state of Maryland, you know, uninsured at this rate. So we're going to go after those numbers, too, to find out what the real story is. So it's hard to get real data on this. It's hard to get people to talk about it. And, uh, you know, people, people are dying as a result of it and exponentially inside our black and brown communities. And um, I did ask a senator one time here in Maryland, I said, you know, so, so what's the healthcare strategy for undocumented, you know, because they're part of the essential workforce. They're, they're working, you know, what's their healthcare strategy? And uh, she said to me, oh, there, there's a free clinic down on, I live in Annapolis, you know, Forest Drive, the doctors volunteer there. And uh, that's just not a healthcare strategy uh, in a global pandemic. I just wish we were kinder to each other, quite frankly, and we cared. Well, I'm not sure it's a healthcare strategy even without a global pandemic, because one clinic probably is not going to meet the needs of everybody who needs healthcare in Annapolis. I know. You bring up an interesting point, and this is something I wish people would ask more about. Why do politicians insist on supporting a system 
That's broken. Have you ever asked that question point blank? Oh, we ask that question all the time. And we we actually went to a um, town hall that the leader, the majority leader, Steny Hoyer, was hosting uh, in PG County a few months ago. We asked him that question point blank. We said, you know, how come when we have 120 sponsors in the House of Representatives, uh, which is the majority of the Democrats, who you are the leader of, he's the majority leader of the Democrats in the House, and they support Medicare for all, yet we can't get a vote on the floor, yet he will not support. And when over 80% of the Americans want Medicare for all, our majority leader will not put it on the floor. And, and the answer to that shows up in his finances. You know, he uh, takes, he's taken over $3 million um, from insurance companies and drug companies. So, you know, that you just got to follow the money. Uh, Van Hollen, Senator Van Hollen has taken money from, you know, the insurance companies and the pharmaceutical companies. And we're going to go to his house on July 25th and, you know, demand the same. Going, you know, you've got to sign on to the Medicare for All emergency bill and stop supporting for-profit organizations. I mean, we don't need to keep sending our taxpayer dollars to for-profit insurance companies. If you look at their books, if you listen to their earnings report in the last quarter, if you look at their stocks on Wall Street, they are doing just fine. They don't need any more of our taxpayer money. The people that need the taxpayer money are the people. It's our money. I often feel like it's like asking me to buy a car that doesn't work. And then once I buy the car, I still have to keep paying for repairs. It's just ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't understand it. Well, and I was just going to yes and that saying, Joe, that, you know, at this point, you know, the Perry report out of Massachusetts and hers, um, the 200 reports from economists, there is enough data of the disparity and racism in our healthcare system. There's the four historic hearings that happened in the House of Representatives this past year. If, if you're unaware of the benefits of Medicare for All and unaware of the moral arguments that have already been um, achieved, you're choosing to not participate. Like at this point, you're choosing to, I think, commit crimes against humanity. There's no more committees. There's no more, you know, oh, we don't know. No, no, no. We absolutely do know. Uh, and there's plenty of reports, plenty of studies, plenty of data. And uh, we don't need to see anything else. At this point, if you are not for Medicare for all, then you are not for the people. And you are actively bailing out corporations that don't need taxpayer dollars. I would agree with that. Unfortunately, we're still going to need to make people realize the situation because some people are just refusing to understand for whatever reason. Before we end, is there anything that you would like to add? Well, join us. I think at the end of the day, uh, you know, we know the resistance and the suffering that's happening uh, by always fighting our elected officials. And so 
I would just ask folks that are listening to your podcast uh, to join us uh, with, you know, our revolution or the, you know, Maryland Coalition uh, or any, you know, Medicare for All group, you know, National Nurses United. There's a lot of us out here. But but join the fight. And and when I say that, it's educate yourself, right? Understand what we're talking about. You know, again, I'm a volunteer. I'm reading the same reports that everybody else is reading. Uh, you know, and then commit to educating friends and neighbors and being in these conversations and then working on campaigns of people that support the issues, you know, support these social justice, equitable policies, anti-racist policies, you know, work on those campaigns up and down the ballot because, you know, candidates that support these policies need the help and they don't have the backing of the establishments on either side of the aisle. So it's super important that we pick our candidates and then we work for them. We phone call, we, back in the day, we used to door knock, whatever it takes now. And, you know, be a part of the solution. Uh, it's one thing to sit on your couch and say, I agree. It's another thing to actually participate in the conversation and to let go of your privilege and to be able to work for other people that are in this privilege. And I think we're all being called to do that through the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, and as a white, privileged, middle-class woman who doesn't need insurance, but all of our children do, all of our children, white, black, brown, you know, everybody needs it. You know, I stay in the fight. I give the time. And I would just ask, you know, that other people will do the same and to join us. So we'd love to have, you know, more people standing with us and creating more Medicare for all voters. Well, hopefully we can get that done. Chrissy, thank you so much for being on Medicare for All Explained. Thank you, Joe, for having me. Appreciate it. You have been listening to Medicare for All Explained. Information about this podcast can be found at our website, medicareforallexplained.org. The music for this show is Super Bubbly by Jesse Spillane. The logo was created by Lily Sparks. Thank you for listening.